Father, we acknowledge you once again, for you have given all good things, and you are the source of all these good things. You have taken care of our needs, mostly before we even need them, for you are good. Help us to be good stewards of all that you've given. Lord, help us to give with joyful hearts as we give back to you just a portion, just a portion. I pray that you would use these things, Lord, to make your word go forth uh, throughout not just Vero Beach or Indian River County, but throughout the nation, throughout the world, that Christ again may be lifted up. And in his name we do pray. Amen. Okay. I'm going to change the order here one more time. Because following our fearless leader's example, we have a lengthy passage to read this morning, and I'm going to allow you to sit. But let's remain standing as we speak to God in prayer, asking for his blessing on the word, and then we'll sit while God speaks to us in the reading of the word. So pray with me once again. Father, we come to your word. We, uh, Lord, this is baby speech for you because it's all we need to know and hear. And, uh, but we are so incapable on our own, Lord, so make us capable this morning. Open our hearts, open our ears, soften our wills, Lord, that we might be susceptible to this preaching of the word. Lord, for myself, I pray that you would edit out my thoughts and my speech that was somehow not honoring to you and that you would make this your word preached. And we look forward to good things and great blessing this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So now please be seated. And yes, it is a lengthy passage. Uh, We will be beginning in Mark chapter 4, if you would turn in your scriptures there, or scroll, or whatever it is you do on your electronic mediums. I'm still learning the the, uh, terminology, so is that scrolling? Okay, scrolling. I love to hear the pages turning, though. Pages turning, turning, turning. Mark chapter 4. Beginning in verse 35, I will be reading from the NAS. You will not find any major disagreements with that in your version. On that day, when evening came, he said to them, Let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd, they took him along with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And there arose a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. Jesus himself was in the stern, asleep on the cushion, and they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he got up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down and it became perfectly calm. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? They became very much afraid and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? They came to the other side of the sea, into the country or the, the country of the Gerasenes. When he got out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. And he had his dwelling among the tombs. And no one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain. Because he had often been bound with shackles and chains. And the chains had been torn apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces. And no one was strong enough to subdue him. Constantly, night and day, he was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains and gashing himself with stones. Seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and bowed down before him. And shouting with a loud voice, he said, What business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you, by God, do not torment me. For he, Jesus, had been saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And he was asking him, What is your name? And he said to him, My name is Legion, for we are many. 
And he began to implore him earnestly not to send him out of the country. And now there was a large herd of swine feeding nearby on the mountains. The demons implored him, saying, Send us into the swine so that we may enter them. And Jesus gave them permission. And coming out, the unclean spirits entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, about 2,000 of them, and they were drowned in the sea. Their herdsmen ran away and reported it in the city, in the country, and the people who came, the people came to see what it was that had happened. They came to Jesus and observed the man had been de- who had been demon-possessed, sitting down, clothed, and in his right mind, the very man who had had the legion, and they became frightened. Those who had seen it described to them how it had happened to the demon-possessed man and all about the swine, and they began to implore him to leave their region. And he was getting, as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed was imploring him that he might come with him. And he did not let him. But he said to him, Go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him. And everyone was amazed. When Jesus had crossed over again in the boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered around him. And so he stayed by the seashore. One of the synagogue officials named Jairus came up and on seeing him fell at his feet and implored him earnestly saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Please come and lay your hands on her so that she will get well and live. And he went off with him, and a large crowd was following him and pressing in on him. A woman who had had a hemorrhage for 12 years and had endured much at the hands of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was not helped at all, but rather had grown worse. After hearing about Jesus, she came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak, for she thought, if I just touch his garments, I will get well. Immediately. The flow of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. And immediately Jesus, perceiving in himself that the power proceeding from him had gone forth, turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing in on you, and you say, Who touched me? He looked around to see the woman who had done this. But the woman, fearing and trembling, aware of what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And, she, and he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. While he was still speaking, they came from the house of the synagogue officials saying, Your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher anymore? But Jesus, overhearing what, has been spoken, what was being spoken, said to the synagogue official, Do not be afraid any longer. Only believe. And he allowed no one to accompany him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came up to the house of the synagogue official, and he saw a commotion and people loudly weeping and wailing. And entering in, he said to them, Why make a commotion and weep? The child has not died, but is asleep. They began laughing at him. But putting them all out, he took along the child's father and mother and his own companions and entered the room where the child was. And taking the child by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which translated means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl got up and began to walk, for she was 12 years old, and immediately they were completely astounded. And he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this, and he said that something should be given her to eat. And thus ends the reading of God's word. May he bless it in our hearing this morning. And now I'm fighting the temptation to pray for illumination because we changed the order. So just so you know where my head is going. Why are we preaching? Why are we looking into the book of Mark? 
this morning. A couple of reasons. One, we've just finished Advent and we've talked about the arrival of Jesus. And so it just seems appropriate before we go back into our study of Jeremiah, which I am anxious to do. Um, it just seems appropriate to spend a couple more weeks looking at the life and teaching of Jesus. And so this morning we're going to look at the life of Jesus, just an episode or an episode, a very busy, compact, you know, compacted episode. And then next week we'll look a little bit at just a selection of the teaching of Jesus. Um, so that's reason number one. It just seems appropriate to the season. But number two, next Sunday is the one-year anniversary of when I gave the young people of our church an assignment and asked them to come to me with an outline of Mark chapter 5, giving me some headlines, like newspaper headlines as kind of an outline. And so I figured it's time we revisit that. Um, And this way the young people are familiar with the passage, although, albeit it was a year ago. (laughs) Um, Let me tell you, I, I will not use their names so as not to embarrass anybody, although they should not be embarrassed. I actually got responses from five or six different of our young people, which is... In our church, a good percentage of our young people. So you should be pleased. There's great hope for this generation. Um, but let me just just read a couple. Two, just let me give yeah two examples. One uh, one young lady gave me an entire newspaper, at least a front page, but she wrote a text and stories and everything. Fantastic. One of the headlines that jumped out at me, though, I really liked was major pork shortage in the Garrison region. You know, which which actually could be today. We have had our own pork shortages, so it's very apropos, fitting to the times. But then we also had one young person who is apparently an aspiring poet, uh, because the outline here of the entire chapter is: pigs die, demons go by, woman with bleed healed indeed, and girl thought dead just sick in bed. <laughs> so, very good responses, and I appreciate very much your interaction. Okay, so I thought we would revisit this and look at this a little bit differently this morning. I must say, I have praised them. Now let me give a little admonishment. I'm still waiting for responses from our fall Sunday school. Okay, I had one sweet young lady give me a very thoughtful response, and I appreciate that very much. But I have high hopes for you all and high expectations. So I'm still waiting. I'm still waiting. Hopefully you will not let me down this time. Now, to Mark chapter 5, I have added the storm at the end of Mark chapter 4 because I think Mark does. Uh, you know, up to this point in the book of Mark, there's, there's more of an emphasis on the person of Christ and the miracles of Christ with some teaching scattered in. By the time you get to Mark chapter 8, he kind of t- turns the tables. And, and from there on, we really have more of the teaching of Christ and more of the walking towards the cross, the passion of Christ. In fact, some people have called Mark a very long introduction in the first eight chapters to a very lengthy passion narrative, which are the last eight chapters. And it's an interesting division. It's useful to keep in mind. But here, for some reason, within the first eight chapters, he had been going an event and some teaching and some teaching and an event. And here he strings together four events. He just like, boom, boom, boom. And so I wanted to look at him as a whole because I believe Mark grouped him here as a whole for a purpose. I think he's making one point. And I think the point is in chapter 4, verse 41, which is kind of the hinge of the whole thing. Who is this? Who then is this? Who is this man? The King James Version says, what manner of man is this? What's, he's obviously different. And Mark is trying to point people to this man. So who then is this? 
or who is this man, which is where we get the title this morning. So we've added the storm. We're going to look at this in four sections. I want to go through and make, and briefly talk through each of the sections without retelling it. I don't want to just reread it. So some things may get left out. Some things may get added too. But in our saga, which sounds very Tolkien to me this morning, of Across the Lake and Back. Isn't that like, uh, what's his name, who went to you know, there and back again? Well, this is Across the Lake and Back this morning as we look at our four vignettes. So individually, let's first look at the storm, chapter 4, 35 to 41. So after a day of teaching from the boat, you know, when Jesus was surrounded by the crowds, and so he got into the boat and sat down and began teaching them along the shore, and there were other boats kind of crowded around as well. So after a day of teaching from the boat, Jesus says it is time to go. And so he tells the disciples, let's just get in a boat, let's go on a cross. You know, for whatever reason, I think he had a divine appointment, it was time to go. But on their way, Jesus falls asleep and an intense storm arises. This intense storm is not uncommon, I'm told, on the Sea of Galilee. I've never been to Israel, but apparently it's surrounded by mountains and valleys. And so the mixtures of airs uh, come screaming down out of the valleys and can stir up the lake on a moment's notice. And so... It does happen. It's not unusual. However, in this case, it was extreme. It says that the boat was already filling up with water. It's like it happened suddenly, and it's getting dangerous fast. And notice that the disciples who are with him, mostly of whom are fishermen who know this lake, they're scared. Now, it doesn't mention their fear yet, but they're afraid enough that they dare to go back and wake Jesus up. And so when Jesus wakes up, he rebukes the elements, and then he rebukes the disciples. But to the elements, he says, be quiet. Basically, he says, be quiet and shut up. The word for shut up there is actually be muzzled. And it's the same word he used back in chapter 1 for an exorcism when he told the demon, basically shut your mouth and come out of him. Be muzzled. And so some have actually thought that this might have been a storm stirred up by demonic elements. I don't believe that. I believe this is just language. I believe it's strong language and it paints a picture. But there was no doubt as to Jesus' authority here. He simply spoke the word. I love that. And in doing so, remember Colossians 1 tells us that nothing has been made except by Christ. Christ has created all things. And it may be a confusing thing for us to look at sometime about the roles of the various members of the Trinity in creation, but Christ was there at creation. And what happened when the earth was formless and void, but yet God stepped forth and said, Light be. And there was light. Very reminiscent here. Who is the man? Peace. Be still. And it was suddenly, there was an instant response. If, if these, these verbs in these words look at the unit as a whole, so it's almost as if before the word was finished out of his mouth, before the sound had trailed off, boom, silence, calmness. It was an extreme calm, so much so that it, it made an impression on the disciples because it says that the disciples themselves were very much afraid. It doesn't say that before. It's very interesting. They're afraid of the storm to the point that they go wake up Jesus. But when they see Jesus simply speak and the elements, gone, they were very much afraid. They add that, that, that adjective, adverb, greatly afraid, mega afraid. And in the midst of this, Jesus also then rebukes his disciples, asking them, why are you afraid? Am I not here? Have you not yet learned who I am? Don't you at least have an inkling after you've seen the works that I've done? Why are you still afraid? They should be learning to know better. But they haven't quite learned all their lessons yet. 
This word for fear for the disciples, by the way, goes to the point of calling them cowardly. Whereas the fear later on of the woman or of Jairus, that's just a fear. This fear is a fear that is so deep in their souls here that they were to the point of cowardice when they went to Jesus. And yet their fear of him after the miracle was greater fear. They were in the presence of something they didn't understand. That's the storm. Now, the deliverance, not the deliverance from the storm, but the demonic deliverance from chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. This is not the first, not the only exorcism in Mark, but it is certainly one of, if not the most dramatic. Basically due to the number of spirits involved, because they said we are legion, which could be thousands, could be hundreds. They're just using the word here generally to say there's a lot of us in here. So we are legion. This man is somehow possessed or afflicted by multiple evil spirits or unclean spirits, the demonic. And then also look at the serious effects on the man. They, the, the, the townsfolk had tried to control him at some points, even chaining him somehow. You know, the ancient Houdini got out of the chains, ran away, but constantly night and day, crying out in the tombs where he lives and gashing himself with rocks. This is extreme. So he was absolutely uncontrollable, and he was to the point of self-harming continually, it says. And then it says he saw Jesus from a distance. Now, I don't know. It may be confusing. Who's, who's responding here, the demon or the man? And I think due to the level of, self, of, of a lack of control and the self-harming that's going on, I think the demon is the one responding here. It is just an interesting note that these tombs were probably in the face of a cliff, a little up above the water, just a mile or two off the shore, probably. They don't have the site down to the, but they're pretty sure. Um, and it would have been an interesting viewpoint. I have talked to pilots who have said that a rainbow that looks like a bow from the ground looks like a ring from up above. And so if he's up on the cliff of the face, can you imagine? He's just watching it at first. Hey, there's another storm on the lake. No big deal. But then, boom, where'd it go? So, you know, so maybe they got his attention. But for one reason or another, he says that he saw Jesus from a distance. And so he came running. He came running and he bowed down before this man. This man. And I personally, like I said, think this is the demon who came running. I think power recognized a greater power. And when he came and bowed down, I don't think he came to bow down in in worship. I think he came came and bowed down pleading. (laughs) I think he came and bowed down acknowledging that a greater power has showed up. He said, you know, have you come here to torment us? It's not time yet. He calls him son of the most high God. There is a recognition. But this is power to power. And I think the weaker has bowed before the stronger. And for some reason, the demon knew this. The demons knows this. Recognizes greater power. Comes and bows down and pleads, don't torment us yet. It's like they know the judgment to come. In some ways, they're smarter than us. <laughs> you know, He's not denying it, and he's not denying that this person is the one who has it in his hands. But see, don't do it yet. It's not time. And apparently, it wasn't time. And it serves God's purposes for, to, to not send these demons into the lake of fire reserved for the devil. But he does allow them to go into the pigs. There is a possible spiritual conflict here because when the demon calls out Jesus' name, calls him son of the most high God, and Jesus had been asking his name, apparently in exorcisms, you gain the upper hand when you know their name and can name their name. So the demon may have attempted it, but he failed because Jesus had said, come out of him. And there was really never any doubt as to how this was going to end up. The demons were going to go. And ultimately they submitted. Now, Jesus speaks once again, come out of him. 
Leave him alone. He does make a concession regarding the pigs, and the pigs go off and somehow inhabit the pigs. And the pigs run off. They, they, I don't know if it was instant insanity or what, but they all bolted towards the water, ran in there, and drowned themselves. So again, we see the self-harm, the self-infliction. We see the, we see the evil intent of the unclean spirits, of the forces of darkness. And yet, still, it still serves God's purpose that he allowed them to remain rather than casting them into the lake awaiting final judgment. I would not begin to understand except that God uses evil even appointed for his purposes at times. He doesn't cause it. He's not guilty of the sin, but he uses it. He keeps it bound, and yet there are purposes for it, which we will maybe someday understand. So, the locals hear about it. They come. They're shocked. They see the man sitting there clothed and in his right mind, totally lucid. They see a bunch of dying pigs floating off in the water, and they say, we don't know what to do with this. Would you please leave? Yeah. Yeah. You know, that which, we don't fear, that which we fear, we're often, you know, repulsed by. So he asked him, would you go? And he does, he does. But the man who had been changed came to Jesus and pleaded with him, let me go with you. Let me go with you. And it may seem heartless, <laughs> but Jesus said, no, no, no. You've got to stay here. I've got a job for you. God saves us and he appoints us to a task. We all have a calling of some kind. But he leaves this man and says, you go and tell your family and your neighbors and everything, all that God has done for you. And so what was the whole point of this crossing? I think it was that man. This shows the heart of God. You remember the parable about the person who has the 99 sheep and the one gets lost? And so they leave the 99 somewhere safe and they go after the one. They go after the one. This was an entirely probably Gentile region. These were not God's people. These were not Israel yet. And yet one of God's people was among them, and Jesus crossed the lake. And he found that sheep, and he brought them to himself. I think that's the whole point of crossing. And then he leaves them there as a witness. Now here I think we can imagine somewhat of the purposes of God. Uh, You know... You know what the diaspora is when God scatters his people among the nations because of their sins? I've always found it interesting when in the fullness of time Christ comes and he appoints his people in the church and says, go and tell. And when they finally go about the business of going and telling, and it focuses in on Peter and especially Paul, and Paul becomes this apostle to the Gentiles, but yet in each city he goes to, where does he go? Synagogues. The synagogues came from the diaspora. When God scattered his people, even though it was punishment, he was also planting seeds for the future. And then Paul comes in and there's a connection point. And he begins preaching the fulfillment of the gospel and saying, well, here's what you need to know. And the message, by the way, was all centered around this man. I think that's the point. I think he was after the one lost sheep, and I think he was even planting seeds and preparing for the future. Okay, And and the message as always, is about this man. Moving on to number three, the weary woman. The weary woman. The woman with the bleed comes. Now, I know it starts with the story of Jairus down in verse 21. But yet, by verse 25, this woman interrupts because Jesus is simply on his way to deal with the household of the synagogue ruler and the sick girl. So we're going to look at the weary woman first because that is the one in its entirety within the story of Jairus. But she had a long-term illness. 
Don't know exactly what it was. They have ideas what it was. But she'd been sick for 12 years. Long time. Long time. I was talking to Sam Long earlier. People that live with an illness for a long time, that moves me. I, I, I take for granted I'm generally healthy. Um, but people who suffer, <laughs> suffer. We have some of those among us. Don't forget them. Okay? Be praying for them. What, what must that be like to get up day after day after day and be somewhat disabled? This woman was probably a social outcast, almost had to be, because she was unclean. You know, so, so she's not supposed to be in public gatherings. She's not supposed to be in the places where people are. And she'd been this way for 12 years, getting worse and worse and worse. She had spent all her money. This thing had ruined her physically and financially because she spent all her money seeking cures. And the doctors, as always, they're necessary, but they can be expensive. <laughs> and so it had taken all her resources. And just as an interesting note, by the way, when you go read this story in Luke, he doesn't mention the physicians. Yeah, he doesn't speak ill of the physicians because he is a what? Yeah, I'm not saying he's not telling the truth. He's just, you know, picking and choosing a little bit there. Okay, but that's common because the different writers write with different purposes. This woman had lost everything. She had been totally ruined physically, financially, outcast, unclean. She shouldn't have been there, but she was desperate. She was desperate. This kind of sickness can make us desperate. But at least... She had the God-given sense that when she heard about Jesus, she knew there's something different. And she said, I've got to get to him. And she said, if I could just touch the hem of his garment. Now, there could have been some superstition woven in with this because, because that was common at the time, too. Okay, Just, just that, that these, these magic men like Simon Magus later, in the, later in, the, in the book of Acts, could supposedly could do wonders. You know, and it was just if we could just touch him. Or remember when the apostles would walk by and their shadows would fall on and some people would be healed just from the shadow falling on is the power of God. But there was a superstition involved here too for some. So superstition mixed with faith, which is a lot of us, <laughs> admittedly. Admittedly, we have a lot of discerning and growing to do, but it was probably there. But yet what little faith she had was sufficient because when she touched the garment, the bleeding stopped. And she knew it had stopped, and she knew she had been made well. And an interesting thing, Jesus did not know she was coming. We're going to talk about that in just, in just a minute, about what, what's going on there. But when he felt the power proceed, he turned around and said, who did it? The disciples, actually being kind of rude to him, once again, like when they accused him of not caring, now they're saying, oh, come on. All these people around, and you're going to complain about somebody touching you? It's a little bit... You know, condescending at the very least. The disciples don't look good in this passage overall. But Jesus, who may have seemed oblivious at first, certainly noticed what happened, turned around and searches for the woman, and then commends her and blesses her and confirms this healing to her and says, Go and be whole. And she says, Your faith has made you well. Coming back to that as well. The disciples, like I said, do look bad again. They almost ridicule him. Then just take note, like in 1 Corinthians 1, where God has not chosen the wise or the rich or the impressive. He chooses the dregs of society mostly for his salvation, and he draws them to himself. So it's not what God starts with. It's what he does with it. And so if you're one of those people that is, woe is me, I can never be something, uh, it's what God does with it. Okay, And for the most part, he has always used the little ones. So do not despair. 
We go down to the fourth episode. I call this the resurrection because that is exactly what takes place. And this is the split episode. So it's verses 21, 24, and then picks up in verse 20, 35 to the end. And a synagogue ruler comes, and he comes humbly because the, the, the conflict between Jesus and the religious rulers has already begun. Okay, so not all of them took to Jesus nicely, but this one, maybe because of his need, and he has seen Jesus working miracles, even on the Sabbath, and yet in his desperation for a child, which many of us can identify with, I would assume, he comes and he bows down before Jesus. He shows submission. He honors him. He even worships him. He comes and bows down and says, Lord, please, please, my daughter is sick. Jesus doesn't hesitate. He, he immediately gets up and walks off with Jairus to go to his house to see the girl, and that's when the woman showed up, and so we've already seen that episode. But while he's dealing with the woman, Jairus, who you can imagine is a little bit antsy, and yet he was patient. It doesn't tell us that he complained about the woman coming and Jesus taking all the time. But notice comes from him his house that the little girl has now died. And Jesus understands the blow this would be. And he just tells him, just keep on believing. Coming to me was the right thing. Be patient. Keep on believing. This is going to be all right. And then as Jesus approaches the house and he sees the people mourning, he says, hey, the little girl's asleep rather, rather than dead. She's not dead. Now, he does clearly say that. I don't think he clearly means that, and there are reasons for that. Okay, One, this word for sleep can be sleep, literal sleep, but it has also been used for physical death, so language can be used in a metaphorical sense. I think that's legitimate. And when Jesus finally does approach the girl and say, I say to you, little girl, get up. The word for get up means rise from the dead. Okay, so he acknowledges there was a death here. In fact, that word for death is the same word used in describing Jesus and his resurrection or the other people who came out of their graves when he was crucified. When the, when, the, when the veil of the temple was torn in two and the graves emptied themselves, at least in part, same word. So this little girl's dead. Why would Jesus say this girl was asleep? I think primarily it's crowd control. <laughs> you remember on the east side of the lake, he told them, go and tell. But on this side of the lake, because of the crowds, because of the multitudes coming to Jesus for wrong reasons or motives, maybe they're coming to see the sideshow. Maybe they're coming to see the dramatic happenings, but they're not coming to the person. They're not hearing the words. And so I think Jesus is simply playing it down. He's going to do what he's going to do. But for the sake of the people there and to help control the crowds, I think he said, hey, 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 she's asleep. And then he privately goes in with just a small handful of people and says to the girl, I say to you, get up. Same root word for his own resurrection. Already said that. So if we look at these as a whole, we have a nature miracle, an exorcism, a healing, and a resurrection, all affected by the spoken word through a particular man. And that's why I think we go back to the question in chapter 4. Who is this? Who is this man? Let me make a couple general observations. No. I will not. Let's talk about Jesus. First of all, what is, the, what is real faith? What is real faith? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has made you whole. Was it something she did? No, no, no. Because the scriptures teach us that faith itself is a gift from God. Faith is the God-given ability to look to Jesus and believe. And to receive from him salvation first. And then all good things from his hand. And the faith the object of the faith is more important than your faith. And I think too often it is common in our culture 
We have faith in faith. We have faith in us. We have faith in our ability to conjure up enough belief that if only we can believe enough, we can force God or whoever this is out there that we really don't know to do what we want. That's sorcery. That's magic. Okay, The object of your faith matters more than your faith, and your faith is a gift from God. To believe in the one whom he has sent, the true, the only true object of your faith. So even the woman to whom he says your faith has made you well, who did she come to? Jesus. This man. This person. She came to Jesus. Who did the disciples in their thick-headedness turn to? Jesus. Where did Jairus go for the healing that he needed? Believing, but, but, but struggling. Jesus. Where did the demon go? Now, that's not saving faith. But he still recognized and honored this person. This man. So, these works, this cluster of works, these are not mere works. These are not random happenings. These are attesting miracles to the presence of the person of Jesus Christ. These are evidence of the eruption of the kingdom of God, which I think is proper to mention today following on Advent. A little baby came. They wrapped him in rags and placed him in a trough. I think sometimes, I think sometimes we take what is the supernatural and we find the part of the story that we can live with. And so to many of us, He's still just a baby. See, that's manageable. That's like taming a wild thing or something. You know, we can, we can live with that. But he's not that. He's the king of all creation who came and took on flesh to save God's people from their sins. Yes, but he's not still in rags. Don't let the rags fool you. Okay, this man grew up. This is the eruption of the kingdom and the presence of the king. And so all these miracles are proofs as to who he is. And who he is is what matters here. This is the presence of the king. This is, these, these miracles can be seen another way as, as is like the first wave of the rolling back of the curse upon the creation because of sin. Just like we sing at Christmas in Joy to the World. He came to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. And here is the man. Here's the one we've been waiting for, and he's coming, and he's rolling back the effects of the curse, whether it's control over nature, sickness, death, the demonic. He came to destroy the works of the devil. He came to be light into darkness. This is the inbreaking of the kingdom of God into a world that had been allowed to wallow under the curse for a long time. God had not left himself without a witness. God had preserved for himself a people, and through this people he brought the son, the son who took on flesh, But all this is about the reversal of the kingdom, the arrival of the kingdom. And this person is the king. He's not still in rags. It's the person that matters. And the works are merely evidential. This king we come to see, even in this chapter, is very unique. He's not your ordinary person. We see in this chapter, obviously, at least a divine or superhuman being who can control nature and all these things with the spoken word. But at the same time, he's human. He was asleep. You realize he was tired? Not tired as God. Okay, I think this explains why he didn't know about the woman coming up at the well, because he wasn't unaware as God. He was unaware in his humanity. But see, he is the one all-time unique God-man. 
And what can be said about any one of his natures about him is true of him, the person, the God-man, the human and the divine in one person. And I know that may be a little bit of a, you know, just a, a detailed theological point some people don't care about, but it's necessary because in this way, he was uniquely qualified to be the man we need. That's Mark's bottom line here. When he's saying, who is this man? He's saying, this is the man we need. He had to be man so he could die for the sins of mankind. He had to be God so the sacrifice would be of infinite value. And on and on and on. There's all these points where in the person of Jesus Christ, it satisfies all the necessities of the event of our salvation. And only in him. Two natures in one person. And this is Mark's point. See, Mark wrote his gospel to confront people. And then and to bring them to a consideration or decision regarding Jesus. People ask questions. He does this in question form here. They ask questions for all kinds of reasons. Sometimes we simply ask a question because we want to know. Or we're seeking the truth in some matter. Or we're trying to educate ourselves on something new. That's fine. Perfect, legitimate use of a question. But it's not the only use. Sometimes, like Socrates, would use questions to lead someone else into a truth. Or into something, an understanding, a clarification. And then there's the other one... <laughs> There's the other one where people ask questions to rebel. You know, some of you are like, okay, well, you say Jesus is all of this, but what about? Okay, well, that's a form of rebellion with your questions. I have gotten many of that, not from our youth, but when teaching other youth classes in other churches. Uh, they will sometimes just start asking questions to try to confuse the teacher so we could just move on and do other things. It's a form of rebellion, is it not? But we do it too. And yet this, this other, this, this use of the question that Mark is using is to get you to think, is to confront you about the person and work of Jesus Christ. To confront you. Who is this man? Who is this person? And what will you do with him? What will you do with him? Who is this man? He's the man we need. We may not know it. But our greatest needs are not physical. Our greatest needs are not financial. Our greatest needs are spiritual because we have been born in sin. And we've been born in sin because of that man. And this isn't the beginning of a whole new sermon, but that man, Adam, the first man, even though put in a garden of perfection and having all of his needs provided for, rebelled against his creator and plunged everything into darkness and under a curse. And that affects you. That affects you because you're born in sin. You're born with a shared sinful nature because of his sin as our representative head. And so that man did great damage. Now, we're not any better than that man because we are born in sin. He rebelled against God, but then so do you rebel against God. This sin nature you have causes you to rebel against him. It causes you to look at all this evidence about who Jesus is and that he's unique and to say, I don't need that, or that's a bunch of hooey. That's the sin in you because of that man. But we're not talking about that man. We're talking about this man. We're talking about this man, the Lord Jesus Christ. That man and his rebellion brought darkness upon all. But this man is the one who obeyed the will of his father, even to the point of death that he might die in place of and to satisfy the sins of all God's people. That man brought about a separation between creation us as his creation and God himself, whereas this man brings a reconciliation in his person as he gives his blood and dies upon the cross. That man brings a corruption, which we all feel. This man brings about a cleansing, 
because his blood cleanses us from all unrighteousness and makes us qualified, not us qualified, but in his name qualifies us to stand in the presence of God himself. That man brought about pain. This man brings about life and healing. That man plunged everything into darkness. This man is the light of the world. This man, this man's life, death, and resurrection makes everything all right between us and our Creator. See, there is this gulf between us and our Creator. There's this chasm like a king that we cannot build a bridge across. There is there's a separation between you and your Creator. This man can span that gulf. This man is a bridge across the chasm. This man is the one who removes all the barriers between you and your Creator. And this man is the one you have to make a decision about. This man is the one maybe you have rejected your whole life. But this is the man you need. This is the man you need. He is the Savior of sinners. So who is this man? What will you do with this man? How will you respond to the truths of this man? See, we can all look at truths. And if we don't like it, the sin in us says, well, that's not true. It's true. We have it on the authority of Holy Scripture, which is true. The word from God's own mouth, and God cannot lie. So the question is not the truth or the reality of it is. The question is, what will you do with it? You can ignore, you can ignore reality for a while. You cannot ignore the results of ignoring reality forever. What will you do with this man? This is the man we need. Praise God. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would take this, your word. You would help us to see it rightly. You would give us, you would warm our hearts and give us an affection for it as it points to you. I pray, Lord, that you would open our minds to understand Give us ears to hear, eyes to see. And Lord, for our wills, I pray that you would cause us to submit to the truth of your word. There is salvation in looking to and entrusting ourselves to this man, Jesus Christ. And for somebody today, I pray that you would make them see. All glory and praise to you in Christ's name. Amen. If you would.